Thanks, Cameron. That's exciting stuff with the CTK Institute. Uh, it's cool to see it develop and come together. Well, we're going through a series in Christian unity, unity of the church. And today, as you've heard, we're talking about unity in a fallen world. And um, conversations I've had over the past uh, several months, I've heard similar themes from different people. And that is basically that there are people that are confused and disoriented by all the things that's going on in the world. And people are looking for help to discern it and interpret it because we're all affected by it in one way or another. And inevitably, what happens is like whenever there's an issue in the world, a lot of times it, it, it shows up at church. If there's a division out in the world, a lot of times those divisions will show up in church. So we have to be able to discern that accurately in order to be able to respond in a healthy Christian way. And our desire as a church, right, is to engage the world effectively. So it's also important that we discern the world accurately. So what we're going to do today, it's a little different. Um, we're going to do a little bit of cultural analysis and critique. And we're doing that to hopefully help us to resist division in the church and maintain unity in the church in a fallen world. So everybody recognizes that the world has changed a lot. Uh, the world has changed dramatically over the past decade, 15 years or so. And for that reason, like the church has had to make adjustments as we're trying to engage the world, whatever the world itself is changing, then we're having to adjust in real time to a lot of these changes. And basically what was true maybe 10 or 15 years ago about the way that people, the way that Christians would engage the world has changed because the environment and the circumstances of the world have changed. And so Christ the King, we were planted in a, in, a, in a time where just the circumstances were very different. I mean, we started in 2010, but now the circumstances are pretty different than they were then. So what I want to do today is, is uh, talk about how we can engage the world. And, but to be able to engage the world, we have to be able to see what's happening, to be able to have a framework or categories for discerning the world. So the way... Uh, a lot of times, Christians will find themselves disagreeing on how to engage the culture. And so these, these disagreements can become tests of unity. And I think we felt that. We felt that in our own church. So my goal this morning is to discern what's driving some of these changes in the world, evaluate them biblically so we can engage in the world, engage with the world with unity. All right, let's dig in. Um, I want to hit a few verses in Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I want to read four different um, snippets of Ephesians 4. So starting in verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's jump down to verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become calloused and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Let's skip down again to chapter 5. We'll read verse 6, 6 through 11. Let no one deceive you with empty words, 
For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Finally, down to verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So in these verses, we see just a, a survey, a quick quick uh, links of Paul's flow of thought. He begins with this call to unity at the beginning of the chapter. And so unity is the context of, of everything that flows out of it. And his basic message is simply this, that it is that in the gospel, God's people are called out of the world and into union with Christ and with his family. And then they are sent into the world, but as a united and transformed people, and they're called to be distinct from the world. Well, how are they called to do that? Well, verse 6, verse, chapter 4, verse 6, by not being deceived by the world. Um, or chapter 5, verse 6, not being deceived. Verse 8, to walk in the light. Verse 10, trying to discern what pleases God. Verse 11, by exposing unfruitful works of darkness. Verse 16, by walking wisely and making the best use of time because the days are evil. In other words, we protect our unity by being careful how we engage the world, because the world is deceitful. The days are evil. We're told not to walk as the Gentiles walk, because their, their minds are darkened. So we need to not walk as the world walks. We need to not think as the world thinks. We need to think as Christians, act as Christians, walk as Christians. And that is the basis of which uh, that, that we unify around and for the, the starting point for, that we engage the world in. So you might think of it this way. You have to think of a boat that is, that is anchored in a river. And so the river is the world, and the church is the boat. The anchor is the truth of the scriptures, the truth of the gospel. So as the boat floats on the surface, you have the current that's pulling the boat. And so the, as the river current flows, it's, it's pulling on the boat, but the, the, the anchor, the chain, holds the boat steady because it's tethered. It's tethered to the anchor. So as the, as the current is pulling the boat, the boat is tethered to the anchor. But whenever the current gets stronger, it pulls the boat even harder, right? So, um, but as long as the, the anchor holds, the boat does stay in place. These days, the river is well past flood stage. It's, it's overflowing. The, the, the current is, is wild. It's like a rapid or a tsunami, and the boat is being pulled very hard. And so as Christians, we need to cling all the more tightly as, as the church to the anchor. We need to hold fast to the truth of Scripture so that we don't just get pulled along with the current. So my concern for us as a church is that we will cling as tightly as we can to the anchor of Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel as revealed in the Scriptures, because the current is pulling us hard. Mark Twain has this famous quote that he says, A lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth even laces up its boots. So we got to lace up our boots. We got we to gotta recognize what's going on because there's an ideology that has taken root in the world and that ideology is driving the current of division in our world. 
So the name of this ideology is critical theory. And so we're going to talk about that today. Now, it sounds academic, boring, harmless. Sounds like, you know, this boring chapter of a sociology textbook. Um, but I promise you, it is anything but. And we've all been impacted by the thinking of critical theory. It has captured the imagination of our world. And the assumptions and the language, the thinking of critical theory has, has been embedded in every layer of our society. You could say it's the spirit of the age. So I'm relying on the work of a guy, his name is Neil Shinvey, and uh, he's done a lot of research and, and reading and study in this area, and so I'm, I'm relying on his work, and I appreciate his work because he's very careful, he's analytical, he's faithful to the scripture, and he derives his research from the original sources. So he's read the, the, the academic work, and he's evaluating what the original authors of these, these things have said. Let me read you a quote. Neil Shinvey said this in an article that he wrote for the Gospel Coalition. He said, over the last few years, new terms like cisgender, intersectionality, heteronormativity, centering, and white fragility have suddenly entered our cultural lexicon seemingly out of nowhere. But in reality, these concepts have been working their way through academia for decades, perpetuated by disciplines such as post-colonial studies, queer theory, critical pedagogy, whiteness studies, and critical race theory among others. These fields can be placed within the larger discipline of what is called critical theory, which is an ideology more popularly known as cultural Marxism. But at, at, this, at, the, at the core, critical theory views the whole of reality through the lens of power. So what I want to do is go over four pillars of critical theory, and I'm doing this uh, because this is the spirit of the age. These are things that we... we are engaging with critical theory all the time, even though we may not know a name for it. But it's, it's the way that our coworkers, our family and friends, on the media, everywhere. It's like, this is everywhere, and we're dealing with it, encountering it all the time, even though we may not have realized that there's actually a system behind it. So it's a quick survey. Obviously, it's not exhaustive. Obviously, there will be some oversimplification and generalizing, but to the best of my ability, I'm trying to represent the views of critical theory as fairly and accurately as I can. Here's the first one. The first pillar is that everyone is seen as either an oppressor or, a, or oppressed. And they are an oppressor or they are oppressed depending on their race or class or their gender or their sexuality or similar uh, classifications. Everybody is either an oppressor or oppressed, and that's everybody. So the oppressors would be cisgendered people, which is people that would say they're either a male or female, especially men, wealthy people, uh, able-bodied people, white people, and so forth. Those are the oppressors. And if you belong to the oppressor group, then you are guilty of oppression regardless of your personal beliefs and your actions. The oppressed group are people of color or people that are, sexually speaking, non-binary, or they're sexual minorities, LGBTQ, or poor people, or disabled people, and so forth. People that would, these are people that would be in the oppressed category. So if you belong to the oppressed group, then you are a victim of oppression, regardless of your personal ability or achievements. So belonging to that group determines whether you are oppressor or oppressed. Here's the second pillar. Oppressed groups are subjugated 
not by physical force or overt discrimination, but through what's called hegemonic power. Hegemonic power. So hegemonic power, it's a, it's a complicated 50-cent word, but hegemonic power means it's the ability of the dominant groups to impose their norms and their values and their expectations on everybody else. So in the United States, hegemonic power is exerted by white people, by men, by straight people, cisgendered people, and so forth, in the oppressor group. And beneath all of those, they're relying on Christianity, or at least the assumptions of Christianity to stay on top, to maintain their power. And since the founding of our country is informed and shaped largely by Christianity, then every part of Western society is oppressive. It's baked in. It's the system that we're a part of. And so since our founding is informed and shaped by Christianity, then whenever an oppressed group experiences injustice, it can be attributed in some way to an oppressor group, which is informed by Christianity. So if an oppressed person experiences injustice, then the root cause is that hegemonic power. It's a systemic injustice that they feel or that they experience. So our whole society then was built upon an evil premise from the ground up. The system itself is unjust. And since systems of our whole society are evil and irredeemable, then changing individual hearts and minds through interpersonal relationships, that's never going to be enough. Because the system itself has to be overcome. All right, here's the third pillar. Oppressed people have a unique access to truth. While oppressors, they tend to be blinded by their privilege. So if you're an oppressed person, then you have unique access to truth. You can see truth in a unique way, and you have, you have the ability to see things that the oppressors tend to be blinded to. So another word for this is standpoint epistemology, another 50-cent phrase. Standpoint epistemology is like basically who you are socially is that determines your ability to see and understand things. And so like a lot of times the appeal is to lived experience of the person, um, and that is how they, because they've lived something, then only they are able to really see the realities and the dynamics at play in that situation. It's really a Gnostic uh, belief system with updated firmware, but it's, it's a standpoint epistemology. So standpoint epistemology is the belief that oppressed people are more enlightened about the true oppressive nature of the world. So oppressors then would often make truth claims based on things like reason, logic, objectivity, scripture, but all of those are considered tools of Western oppression. Oppressed people they tend to focus on personal stories or narratives of oppression because they're awakened to it, and they're awakened to it by virtue of the fact that they've lived it. Here's the fourth pillar. Society has a moral obligation to liberate the oppressed. You might hear things like, you defend the marginalized. You work for social justice. We'll hear things like this, like you, had a, you need to do the work. You need to pervert diverse, uh, pr promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. You need to be on the right side of history, things like this. And so since injustice is systemic, right, our whole society, every part of our society is built upon injustice, therefore it can only be corrected through uh, political action, something that can change and alter the systems themselves. So according to cr critical theory, social justice cannot be achieved through interpersonal relationships, changing hearts and minds. It can only be achieved through changing the systems themselves. 
And systems are changed through political action. And that means everything is politicized because everything is part of the system. The whole system is corrupt. The whole system is evil and irredeemable. And so if you need to change the system, you have to change it through something that's powerful enough to actually revolutionize the system. You can't do it by just individual actions. And since everything is politicized, that means even pers your personal life. So one's sex or race, um, everything. All those things are, are politicized. So if you ever heard of like the phrase identity politics, I mean, this is where it comes from. Identity politics is that our personal lives are debated and, and uh, discussed as matters of policy in you know, the capital, Washington, D.C., places like this. Now, as we talked about last week, Christianity teaches us to honor the individual, honor individual consciences, because Christ has set us free. We see this in John chapter 8. So for this reason, because Christianity promotes freedom, then Christianity is seen as the biggest threat to critical theory. Since Christianity produced Western society, Christianity itself is the enemy. Now, you might, you know, you might think, well, you've got to be exaggerating, Michael. You're, you're overplaying it. Surely, it's, surely you're kind of caricaturizing, and I assure you that is not the case. Uh, as, what I've put before you is openly discussed in the literature of critical theory. And even though you know, your boss, your coworkers, people in the media may not be like, students of critical theory, it's like the thinking and the basic values, the worldview of critical theory has been, has been kind of seeping into our culture. And so it's a, it is the spirit of the age. You don't have to be a student of it to participate in it and act, act according to these beliefs. So critical theory is a very fast-growing ideology, and I, I, mean, I think it's been at least a major factor driving division in our culture. And if you're paying attention, you do see and hear it everywhere all the time. So um, what do we do about this as Christians? Well, I think there's, let's start here. There are some things that we can affirm in critical theory. So we don't have to just say there's uh, everything about it, if, it, if er, everything is wrong all the time. Let me, let me just say that there are some true things that Christians can gladly affirm. For example, number one, oppression is truly evil. It's real, it exists, and it is truly evil. Number two, injustice can be systemic. Laws and cultures can oppress people, and that's evil. Number three, people in the majority culture do have privileges, and those privileges can be used to uh, exploit or oppress other people. That can, be, that can happen. Number four, other, a, a person's personal or lived experience does give him or her valid insight into the world. It does give them a, a, a perspective that is, is valid and needs to be heard. They can understand how things work. So we don't have to just throw those things out and say, well, those things are, uh, we, we don't need to deny the reality of those things. All those things are true and biblical. And everything I just mentioned here, those things have been preached at this church from this pulpit. Maybe not the new one, but when it was a music stand. Preached it from this pulpit. I mean, I've talked about these things. So at Christ the King, like, we, we care about these things because we care about people. Not because critical theory tells us to, but because the Bible tells us to. Because people matter to God. But here's the problem. Critical theory is not merely a set of tools to gain understanding. Critical theory is a complete worldview. And this is a, a, a big mistake that was made by the Southern Baptist Convention. A couple years ago, uh, there was a, at the annual convention, there was a resolution that uh, was put forward about critical theory. And what happened was, is that 
uh, it was voted on and approved, but the, the resolution basically said, well, critical theory, critical race theory is the particular version that we're discussing there. They said these are uh, helpful analytical tools, but scriptures are highest authority. And, and while that's technically true, it doesn't account for the fact that critical theory doesn't function as helpful analytical tools. Critical theory is a worldview. It, it, it's, you, it's, not, it's not used as though here's an insight, there's an insight, oh, I want to learn that. That might, be, that might be how a lot of us engage with it. It's like, here's an insight, there's an insight. But critical theory itself is a, is a worldview. It, it's, it's a comprehensive perception of how the world is. So in the academic world, it's taught as a worldview. And in culture, in business, in entertainment, in government, it functions as a worldview. Let me read to you something by Carl Truman, who is a um, you know, Christian academic and author. But let me just read you something that he said. He said, critical race theory like other critical theories. So he's talking specifically about critical race theory, but he's also including just the broader discipline that includes all oppressed people and all oppressors. So critical race theory, like other critical theories, is self-certifying. Its basic claims, for example, that racism is systemic or that being non-racist is impossible are not conclusions drawn from arguments. They are axioms. And they cannot be challenged by those who do not agree with them. Those who dissent or offer criticism are, by definition, part of the problem. It's not a theory. It's a dogma. The attraction is obvious. Critical race theory rests on simple therapeutic premises. It leaves no room for argument or doubt. And for all of its sophisticated language, critical race theory portrays life as a zero-sum game. Some people do not have power. They struggle. They do not flourish. And this happens because somebody else has seized power from them and oppresses them in an ongoing and unrelenting way. The oppression has solidified into a self-justifying system. There is a comprehensive explanation for all the evils we suffer. And then he concludes with this thought. All embracing and transformative views often have a religious quality. Critical race theory is no exception. And it's this religious quality that concerns me. Because critical theory has made inroads into the broader church in America. Let me just say this here. I don't see it ha as having taken root of Christ the King. So I'm, I'm, I'm speaking about how this has affected the broader church and the culture so that we can, this is a preemptive measure for us to be aware of what's happening and what's happening in, in the broader church. It's made inroads into the broader church in America. And what it's done is it's catechized Christians into an alternate vision of God, of Christ, of the gospel, of righteousness, of sin, of the Bible, of our mission. So in the church, the vision of critical theory has been popularized and repackaged for a Christian audience, and Christians are buying it. I've seen people get caught up in this ideology, and I've seen it rob their joy in Christ. I've seen, it, I've seen it transform their thinking, their perception of everything. And it makes them angry and bitter. Last week, uh, Christianity Today, they ran an article about how this is happening at Bethlehem Baptist Church. You know, John Piper, this is a church that he was a pastor of for, I don't know, three or four decades. Um, well, he's since moved on, but um, now the church is dealing with a major controversy. And issues of critical theory, critical race theory are really coming to the fore 
in this controversy in the church because it is, it is made inroads there. I've heard reports of critical theory and division related to it and a lot of other churches and organizations that, that we respect. I mentioned the Southern Baptist before. I've also seen it at Southern Seminary, my, my alma mater. Campus Crusade for Christ, my former employer. PCA, the Presbyterian Church of America, the Gospel Coalition, Together for the Gospel. I mean, it's, these are organizations that we respect and we love and we appreciate and we, we, we benefit from. And yet there's, these, the, there's division being experienced in these organizations that I would love to not happen here. And I think the best way to prevent them from happening here is to, is to, to getting, it out, getting this out in front of us so that way we can, we can detect it, we can discern it so that whenever, whenever we run into it, we, we've seen it before. We've, we've, we're, f- we're a little bit more familiar with it. And I think the, the, the major way that it comes into a church is that it preys on the compassion of well-meaning Christians who love God, they love people, they care for the suffering, they care for those who are marginalized, who are, who are in pain. And that compassion can be exploited and, and, and be, be used to, in service of an ideology that we would reject as Christians. It deceives Christians because it seems plausible. Colossians chapter 2, verse 4. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. We're smart. You're smart people. We're not deceived by things that are obviously deceptive. We're more likely to be deceived by things that seem plausible, right? Chapter 2, verse 8, Colossians 2, 8. Paul goes on to say, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Here's another one, Romans 16, verse 17. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, They deceive the hearts of the naive. Critical theory borrows languages, or excuse me, critical theory borrows language and concepts from Christianity. It speaks in Christian terms using Christian language. But it redefines the words and replaces them. It packs them full of new meaning, a different meaning than what was intended by the original author. And so you could say that critical theory relies on Christianity to supply it with moral categories and then uses those same categories to discredit Christianity. So here's the fact, that critical theory is a worldly ideology that divides the church and only the truth of the gospel can unite the church. It's that simple. Critical theory hurts people, it divides churches, it hinders our mission, it dishonors God. So let's do a biblical evaluation. Let's go back through the four pillars. Let me give you a biblical evaluation of critical theory. So first point, critical theory presents a false view of humanity by viewing everyone through an oppressor-oppressed lens. That isn't biblical. Genesis 1.27 says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. So Christianity teaches that there is only one race, that's the human race. And there are two sexes, only two sexes, male and female. 
and our value as humans is derived from God who created us in his image. That's what makes us valuable and not from any external physical characteristics. Secondly, critical theory misdiagnoses the problem because it sees human oppression as a reference point for all sin and not a holy God. So critical theory focuses on people and their suffering rather than God and his glory. And God's name is only invoked in the cause of social justice. So critical theory locates sin within groups or systems. And so people are seen as victims in need of care or oppressors who are oppressing, but not sinners who are in need of grace. So you might have heard this in the news. Uh, earlier this year, there was a, a training, like a diversity training with Coca-Cola. And it was for their employees. And people were trained, and they, they said, to be less white. Because whiteness was seen as a problem. Like you might have heard the term, like whiteness. Uh, whiteness is used now as a synonym for what we might have called sin before. But now whiteness is seen as the real problem, the culprit. Now, the Bible uses the word sin because God alone is holy and righteous. God is the lawgiver. God is, he gives us his divine law, and his law is good, and his judgments are impartial. And we are accountable to God. Critical theory uses words like whiteness or things like that. And that drives racial, racial division because there is no divine lawgiver. There is no divine law. There is no impartial judgment. We're accountable not to God, but to people. So in this thinking, oppressed people are always innocent victims. And if you were to say otherwise, you're accused of blaming the victim. But if a man only sees himself as the victim and not as a sinner, then he will never see his need for the gospel. Romans 3.23, we read, we read this in our liturgy. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. Christianity says sin is the real problem. The sin of racism is first and foremost a sin against God, a sin against the image of God in another person. So if, if, if somebody is, is doing, believing or acting in a prejudicial or racist or impartial or, or in a partial way, they're sinning against the image of God. They're devaluing the person whom God values. It's a sin against God ultimately. So in Christianity, God is the standard. God is the reference point for understanding sin. And every sin is a personal offense against God ultimately. Here's number three. Critical theory doesn't provide any real solutions. And ultimately... Critical theory makes the problems of division worse. So critical theory offers no redemption. There is no forgiveness. There is no atonement. There is no mercy. There is no gospel. There is only perpetual penance. There is only wrath. But not the wrath of God. It's the wrath of society. And this is where Critical theory is especially harmful because the wrath of society is cruel and unjust and merciless. It makes people more judgmental. Also, society is fickle. We can't make up our minds about what, what is right and what is wrong. The rules are always changing. And that makes people live in this constant dread of getting canceled for something that they did 10 years ago. 
before whatever the law was that they broke was even considered wrong. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is merciful. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. So Christianity teaches that sin incurs the wrath of God, but God is both just and he is merciful. And in his mercy, Christ died in our place. You could say Jesus got canceled for us. Jesus was publicly shamed for us. He suffered wrath, not just the wrath of society, but also the wrath of God himself was poured out on Jesus Christ. And having paid the price for our sin, through faith, we are forgiven, we are reconciled, we are welcomed into God's family, and we're given eternal life. Number four, critical theory undermines the gospel by promoting injustice in the name of justice and by preaching a kingdom without a king. So critical theory would say that our purpose in life is to fight injustice. And we do this with the tools of political agitation or righteous activism. So critical theory has its own great commission. It, it's a, a utopian vision of a society that is free of all oppression and injustice. And whenever critical theory takes hold in a church, it promotes social and political causes at the expense of evangelism and discipleship. Jesus promised that he would build his kingdom. And he builds it with the preaching of the gospel, with personal conversion, discipleship, people commit to follow Christ. Christianity teaches that our purpose then is twofold. It's, it is the great commission and it is the great commandment. So I'll read you these. Matthew 28, 18. Here is the Christian Great Commission. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Great commandment then, Matthew 22, 37. Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So as Christians, our purpose is to live our lives to the uttermost for the glory of God and to help others to do the same. Now let me just make sure that, I, that you're hearing me accurately here. I am not saying that Christians should not care about justice. I'm not saying Christians should not care about suffering or mercy or compassion. Those are good things. Those are the fruit of the gospel. Those are, those are the things that the gospel produces in us. It is, a, it is a love for our fellow man, a love for God, and that, that manifests itself in these things. So they, these things are, are good for Christians to care about. What I am saying is that we can and should freely pursue those as good works, but never at the expense of the church's primary mission. The church is supremely qualified to do one thing, and that is to preach the gospel. We're not really qualified or very good at many of the other things that we would be recruited to be involved in. 
But what the church does, Jesus explicitly commanded us to do. And he said that the church is uniquely qualified to do this, and that is to preach the gospel, to hold fast, to preserve the true doctrine of Scripture. That's what we do. So where do we go from here? I I said earlier that I don't see evidence of critical theory taking root in our church, but we are influenced by it. We are influenced by it because we see it every day. I mean, it's, it's, it's everywhere. It'd be hard not to be influenced by it. And a lot of times, uh, if we're not discerning, we can just mindlessly adopt the categories of critical, critical theory and just kind of fold them in to our understanding of Scripture, baptize them, and say, this is what Jesus wants me to do, without really seeing that we've actually imported this Trojan horse that undermines the truth of the gospel. But I do see in the broader church evidence of critical theory taking root. And because it's happened there, then it could happen here. Now, as a church, we want to engage the world. We want to reach our city. That's, that was the founding of our church. It's like whenever I moved here to plant this church, I, I saw myself and I still do as a missionary to Cincinnati. I want, I want to see this city reach for Christ. I want to see people to know Jesus, to have their souls saved from the wrath of God and eternal hell and to be brought into union with God, to be uh, joined in the fellowship of a local church, and to, to grow, to know Christ, to have joy, to flourish as a child of God. And I see critical theory as, as something that undermines that. And frankly, it, it's, doing evangelism is hard. There's a lot of things that we could do that would, would, would certainly show compassion, would certainly be merciful, and we want to continue doing those things, but never at the expense of, of the greater, higher calling of our church. So as we engage the world with the gospel and with good works, we also want to discern the world. And we want to be united in the fact that we are standing on the truth of the gospel, and that is our highest commitment. Remember from the first week, like gospel convictions... I see critical theory undermining that first category. Critical theory undermines gospel convictions. It drives division. So it's like the boat analogy. Critical theory is the river. It's pulling us in its direction, and so we need to cling more tightly to the anchor. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. That's the most valuable thing in all the world. Only the gospel can provide the resources that we need to be honest with ourselves with our own sin, our own prejudices, the way we sin against others, the ways we fail to love, the way we act unjustly, the way we show partiality. In the gospel, we have the spiritual resources to deal with those things head on and to be able to be forgiven and redeemed and having a clear conscience, knowing that our standing with God is sure. We can repent and change and grow in the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we engage the culture with the gospel, the way to greater unity in the church and in the world, is not less Christianity, but more. Not less Jesus, but more. If we truly want to love people and love what's good, if we truly hate racism, hate injustice, hate oppression, then we'll see that the answer is Christ. The answer is not critical theory. Now, in 100 years, I don't think that critical theory is going to be an issue. I don't think we'll be talking about it in 100 years. Hopefully, it'll be dead and gone in the next 10. And whenever the future church history books are written, I do think that critical theory will get its own chapter. So let us be the ones that are standing strong against it. Let us be the ones that contend for the truth of the gospel in our time. 
Let's teach it, proclaim it, live it, defend it, all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Lord, thank you, Father, that, that you've spoken to us in your word and that you've given us the good news of the gospel. And in the gospel is our only hope. And Father, whenever we look at scripture, we see the truth that is there, but it's whenever we're trying to look out into the world and apply it to, to patterns and themes and currents, Lord, it is... Um, it's harder to see. And it does take a, a degree of wisdom and discernment. And if Father, I pray that you will give us that wisdom and discernment. And Lord, I pray that you will protect the unity of our church by helping us to be more deeply rooted in the gospel. Help us to see human beings as image bearers of the divine. Help us, Lord, to in our, in our effort to do good works, in our effort to show love and compassion for other people, Lord, help us to do that with the, the tools and the truth of Scripture that you've given us. And Lord, I pray against any division that would take root in our church. Help us, Lord, to learn what does it mean to engage the world now, given the changing environment and circumstances that, that we've experienced over the last few years. Give us wisdom. Give us clarity, Lord. Ultimately, God, give us compassion, not just for the physical suffering of people around us, but for their eternal souls. Give us fruitful mission, a fruitful and effective witness in this world. Unite us around the gospel, around our mission, which is a powerful testimony in a fallen world to the truth of the gospel. Help us. We pray all of these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.